Hey, it's Jeff, and I am passionately dedicated to this podcast and to creating the most relevant episodes that address our world's most pressing issues. Now, this often requires a very small staff and me to scramble around last second because the nature of current affairs right now is just so liquid. We have generous sponsors who make this podcast possible for free. And sometimes I realize it may feel strange to have an ad in the middle of an episode on a very serious topic. I just ask for a little grace here, as sometimes I am swapping out episodes in the very last second in order to stay current. It's an honor to do this work. So thank you. Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Our course platform features many world-renowned wellness teachers, including Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, and Adrian Mishler. In addition to courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you are interested in enrolling in any of those course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. Right now, I think we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. My guest on the show today is Anasa Troutman. Anasa is a transformational African-American leader based in Memphis, Tennessee. As CEO of Culture Shift Creative, Anasa works to build and execute strategies for artists and organizations that are aligned with her vision of a loving world and her belief in creativity as a pathway to personal community and global transformation. She co-hosts the podcast, The Big We, where she dives into the messiness, heartache, power, love, and brilliance of people who are bent on changing the world. On the show today, Anasa and I discuss race relations in America, why the murder of George Floyd was the breaking point for many African Americans, the relationship between COVID-19 and the nationwide protests, what leadership should look like in this moment, whether to mute or to speak out, and the black church and its role in civil rights. This is an important episode. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. the what's the vibe in memphis i'm um <laughs> um there have been um protests every day um the there's a, a woman here who i um support who is a young woman she's like in her 20s she runs a nonprofit, and she's like one of the most brilliant people i've ever met and at the end of the protest on Saturday, she um, was 
attacked by the police unprovoked walking down the street leaving the protest and the, some one of the police officers yelled out get the girl and they ran towards her tackled her and four police officers jumped on her full right here hmm. and she's like one of our she's like one of our leaders here she's the per, she's like for me the person who i'm like Everything I got is going behind that girl right there because she's gonna she's gonna be the future of Memphis, and it's just been interesting. And, and of course, like all the right responses, the mayor wants to have an investigation. All the black-led cultural institutions have put out a statement, so on and so forth. But it just speaks to you know where we are, yeah. where where we are. That you know, there's these you know, really beautiful protests, peaceful protests, protests over, and then someone decides that, that, that uh, uh, you know, somebody needs to be attacked unprovoked. And, and, and then we are in the, you know, reeling from the, from, you know, as a consequence. So she's now, you know, physically okay, but like, what does it do to you to decide to stand up for your people? And then you get attacked by the police <laughs> for no reason. Right. And, what does it mean for her work? What does it mean for all of us who love her? What does it mean for, for you know, the work that she's doing, the people that she's supporting to have this interruption? So it's, you know, so on one hand, it's like things are, you know, protests, so on and so forth. But on the other hand, it's like we are, as an arts community, specifically dealing with um, the trauma of, of the impact of, of what's happening right now. Yeah, uh, I mean, also, you would think with the raised level of, of scrutiny that there might be oh, more think. awareness. Yeah, you would think. But I suppose that's what it's about, <laughs> is that there is no thought. No, yeah. there isn't. And I, I had been thinking this all week. I've been like, if I were a police officer, I would do my best to make sure that there was no brutality and unjust use of force just so that this kind of interruption wouldn't happen. Cause I can't imagine that, that police officers are like, yay, we get to put on our riot gear and deal with this. Like I, even if for their own self-protection and like identity in the, in the world, I'm like, why would you, why does the culture of abuse and excessive force and murder, like why is that allowed to live in the police force. Why, why? Like who's, who was co-signing that? Who was like, this is a great idea. Yes, we should be, we should be people who do this. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. Um, I guess I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't want to get it. And you said something that strikes me. Um, and I think it, it's very reflective of who you are. Cause you, you, you said uh -huh. if I were, a police officer and mm. um when i think uh of anasa troutman mm -hmm. i think i think of empathy um oh that's nice thank you sure and so i, I wondered if you would just take uh, a few minutes to tell the listeners kind of who you are where you grew up sure. where you came from and yeah uh, and what Favorite story. <laughs> yeah, the story. What, what, what were all the ingredients that go into you now? Yeah. Um. So, 
the this version of the story, there are parts of it like I'm gonna tell it to you in chronological order, not in order of what I know. Like, oh, I, this is what I just found out. So I, um, my great 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 grandparents were named Georgiana and Armstead Branford, and they were born both born slaves in Virginia, and. Armstead's father was also his slave master. So my story and my, um, the, the, the recorded and repeatable part of my story and my family's history is really like the epitome of, 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 a, of a, the story of African-Americans where I have this legacy of enslaved Africans, um, you know, parented by white masters who had violent and inappropriate relationships with female enslaved people and these children born who then have to figure out, you know, their identity and their life and their family and their place in America. Um, and uh, Armstead and Georgiana, the, the, the land that they worked as slaves, by the time they died, they owned part of it. And I don't know that whole story, but that also speaks to the other part of this story of America, which is like about, you know, land ownership and wealth building, the, you know, self-determination, you know, the, the amassing of, of land and, and fortune and like this thing called the American dream that is, that is most often not available to, um, to, to anyone who was certainly not who was a slave. So there's like that part of my history, some of which I know and some of which I don't, but that really intrigues me because then the, 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 the descendants of that couple, you know, give rise eventually to my father, who is, you know, born in the South Bronx, super, super, super dirt poor. Um, the stories he tells me are terrible about how, how it was from growing up. Listen to stories from my grandmother about how life was. And then on the other side of that is my mother, who, you know, was born in rural South Carolina, who grew up picking cotton as a child, who their families, their families work, was able to go out to the road at the, in front of the house, they would wait for the truck, the truck would take them to the cotton field, and they would pick cotton for a living when it was cotton season. And, you know, eventually her and my grandmother moving to New York, and her, you know, meeting my dad, and me growing up in a family where when a lot of people were asking the question of is the is the answer to black liberation black power or is the answer to black liberation um civil rights and not and nonviolence their answer was like yes and we actually are going to we're going to take this path of culture and we're going to say to our children and to our community we know there's a lot happening, but we want you to know that you are special and you're important and you're beautiful and you are a contribution because you're of your blackness and because you're a girl and because of everything about you makes you special, makes you valuable, makes you important, and don't let anybody ever take that away from you. So so in, when they were in college, they were with these friends and all of their friends created this cultural context for all of their children. So, you know, all the people who are in my extended family, that's why my name was Anasa and my sister's name is Nandi. And then there's Timba and Taiwo and all the, all the African names because our parents wanted us to be connected to our African heritage. And they wanted us to be proud of our African heritage, even in not actually being able to trace back to a specific tribe or country or name or family 
They wanted us to know that we had a home somewhere and they wanted us to know that we had a legacy and that our history started before the first slave ship ever came to, to, to steal and enslave Africans on the continent. And so I grew up in a house where, you know, culture and artistry and spirituality and politics and community and all those things were really one conversation. There was no separating one from the other. And it was as important for me to listen to black music and read black books and draw, you know, you know, draw things and all that. It was as important for me to do that as it was for me to vote or to be kind or to pray or to do anything. Mm-hmm. And so when I became, you know, adultish and I was in that time in college when you look up and you realize that the world outside of your parents' house is, is different than, 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 than what you grew up with. And you're like, Oh, well me, I was like, wow, the world out here is not really great. Like this kind of sucks out here. I am, I, what am I going to do? And, um, it's funny because it's never, there was never a question of whether I was going to do anything. It wasn't like, should I do something? It was like, what am I going to do? And my decision was to was to build culture because that's what we did in our house. And so when I was in college, I was just getting out of college. I was 22, maybe 22 or 23. I um, worked in the record store and I met a whole bunch of artists and I decided that these artists were going to change the world. And I started the record label. And one of um, the artists, happened to be India Ari, who, who who I think y'all have talked to recently. And that work and like working with her and understanding that the power of culture, the power of song, the power of creativity outside of my little world, like going out into the whole wide world and seeing what her music did for people proved to me that what I was thinking about was right. And that I, Sent me, that sent me down a trajectory of like the rest of my life to really continue to experiment with art, culture, and creativity as a as a tool for social impact. And I did the music industry. I've been in politics, and now I'm really thinking about um, real estate development and resource development and community wealth building and all of that stuff, all in the culture of storytelling and all in the, in the, in the context of creativity, because what I know is that anytime you have a political or economic shift, that it, a narrative and cultural shift has to, has to precede it. So, I have, you know, spent really my entire career from being in my 20s thinking and perfecting how to tell stories that open people's hearts, how to be able to have people see a new vision for the world, that they are stuck in their old vision. And then, like, once you're inspired, then, like, let's move and let's see what we can do. So I have a, um, a, a company here in Memphis called The Big We, I mean, called uh, Cultures of Creative, and I have a podcast um, and, a, and a media platform that we're developing called The Big We, and we're just doing our best to tell the stories that are going to get people to wake up and then give them something to do so that they don't wake up and then fall back to sleep. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. Um, you talk about waking up, and um, and first of all, th- thanks for sharing that story. Oh, sure. Um, sure. I, I think I, I saw you speak, maybe it was a video, where you hmm. you mentioned 
um, that you were quite shy growing up, and it's uh, oh. <laughs> and it's funny because I know you as exuberant and gregarious and yeah. articulate yeah. and I, I don't know if extroverted is fair because but I know you that way and um yeah and I I wonder if there was uh an inflection point in your life because shyness belies <laughs> your current character you know what I'm so happy you asked me that because I have had a humongous revelation about that very thing in the last couple of weeks, which has been really life-changing. And I think it's an, it's important because I'll let me tell you a story first and I'll tell you why it's important. So I got a therapist and <laughs> therapy has been really funny to me because like literally the lady just sits there and, and listens to me and I just like jump to all the jump through all these portals like oh my god I never realized and I just like am talking myself through this thing I'm paying this woman just to listen to me which I guess <laughs> is the point right yeah but the other day I realized I had because I do I tell that story a lot about how shy and scared I used to be um growing up because I really was like I I, I, I understand why you don't recognize it because it's hardly there at all. But I used to be so shy that I would like take my books, pull the couch out and go sit behind the couch and read behind the couch. Or if we were out, I would just be hiding, literally hiding behind my parents and peeking around their leg or never saying anything and having things that I wanted to say, being in a conversation or being in class or wanting to create something and like, and just being like gripped with the fear of death and not open my mouth. I remember not being able to tell my parents I loved them. I remember like talking to my mother one day and being like maybe 11 or 12 and wanting to tell her I loved her so badly and just being so afraid just to say words. And when I was in this therapy session the other day, I had a clear and distinct remembrances of three or four instances in my life before the age of nine when I was all those things, gregarious and loud and, you know, vivacious and creative. And I was like, wait a minute, I am not shy. <laughs> I was afraid and wounded and scared and had to go through this process of like, combing through the incidences that got me from being a very expressive, very outgoing, very extroverted child to deciding that the world wasn't safe. And a lot of it is just because a lot of it is because I was, you know, being an, an empathetic person makes you spiritually and emotionally very sensitive. So part of like growing up in our country is parents are not prepared to, to raise children who are emotionally sensitive. And so the world at some point just got to be too much for me. And part of that um, was being on the beach as a, as a seven or eight year old and being called the N word by some guys in a truck and like going from feeling like, oh, everything is wonderful. I'm not on the beach, life is amazing. Cause I wasn't with my parents. I was just with a couple of friends walking down the beach cause I felt safe enough to do that. And then realizing that for me as a, you know, eight year old black girl that the world actually wasn't safe. And that was like the beginning of me shutting down 
to the point where I just wouldn't say anything to anybody. And what I had, what I'm learning is like the work I have done over the past maybe 10 years, because I was like, I'm tired of being quiet. I would like to be creative and speak up and be all the things that you know me as Jeff. It wasn't that I was creating a new personality. It was that I was uncovering all the muck that I had put on top of my real personality to be able to rediscover who I actually am. And the thing that's been so interesting about that is at the same time, I'm like in all these conversations about about race and class, and I'm discovering that, you know, <laughs> what I know about every human being that I've ever met is that they have issues. Every single one of us has some kind of childhood issue. Some of us have worked through our stuff and some of us have not. Some of us are halfway through. And what I'm learning is that on top of like all of the systemic historic narrative around race, class, gender, sexual, sexuality, all that stuff is also like a layer of who people are, what their capacity for introspection, change, um, accountability, and so on and so forth. And it just makes like this, these conversations about global transformation all the more difficult because if we were just talking about social issues, it would be one thing, but I have to talk to you about social issues through your lens of your own personal hurt. And it makes it like a thousand times more difficult, especially because most people, when they're in those conversations, don't recognize or acknowledge the person's humanity and the issues that they're dealing with that make them not be able to hear or listen or look at themselves or change or, or, or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I suppose that is hyperbolized right now. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. That might be an understatement. Um, and, yeah, and, um, yeah I, I what I witness in you um, is the approach to conversations with love and honesty mm-hmm. and, and an optimism, really. Um, I mean, even if in, you know, I'm sure that there's, uh, you know, plenty of, of dark nights of the soul going on Mm -hmm. as well, but, you know, um, and I, and I wonder if, um, and I, and I, we've talked about this before, um, but one thing I'm very grateful, uh, for is that you do step into the role, whether you... (laughs) see yourself as mm-hmm. this as stepping into this role or not as a bridge between people and i really mm-hmm. mean i really mean all people but in this mm-hmm. particular context between black and white communities and yeah i'm grateful for that um because it it lets me be vulnerable and step in a bucket of shit <laughs> and <Yeah>. with with <laughs> with forgiveness um, mm. but I, you know, I wonder how you see yourself, uh, and your role, um, kind of navigating this wickedness. Mm. Um, I'm, I mean, in all honesty, I'm still working through that. Um, it's a, it's a tightrope. And I mean, I think the first time that I realized that I could or or even might play the role of like 
<laughs> I don't even know what you call them, like being an ally to white people as they try to be allies to black people. Like that's what mm-hmm. it feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, is I was at a retreat maybe, gosh, probably 10 years ago now. And we, it was, um, it was a, a, a room um, full of people from all races. It was black folks and white folks and Southeast Asian folks and Latino folks. It was, everybody was in the room and um, we were shown a movie called the traces of the trade. And the movie was a documentary film about this woman. I can't remember her name, but this woman's grandmother wrote a book about their family history. It was like a hundred page book that had their whole entire family history. They were like an old New England family. And her grandmother had written this whole, 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 whole narrative about their family history for their Christmas present one year, I think it was. And so this woman, I want to call her Katrina, I think that's her name, but don't quote me. But anyway, this woman read the book and like there was one line that said, and we were involved in this, in the slave trade. And that was literally the only line in the whole book. And she was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We are a good New England family. How is it possible that we were involved in the slave trade? And she started asking questions. And she called her grandmother first, and her grandmother was like, you're worried about the wrong thing. We're not talking about this. That's all that you need to know. Move on with your life. Don't focus on the negative. And she started asking questions in the family, and people were getting angry with her. And they were telling her, like, you're making this look bad. You're taking up dust. You need to stop this. And she ended up writing a letter to her entire family. It was like 300 people and said, this is something I'm curious about. I need to know what our relationship with with race is and our history with race and slavery. And I am inviting you all to go on a journey with me to figure out what this looks like. And she was getting like hate mail from her family. And eventually six other of her family members agreed to do this with her. And they hired a film crew and they traced their family's relationship with slavery all the way back to like what their actual role in the slave trade was. And they had a major role. I won't spoil it for you because you should watch it. It was an amazing film. Their actual role in the slave trade as a good liberal um, North New England family who was like part of the founding of Brown University. Like they were, they're deep in the, in the history of New England and saw themselves as like, you know, raging Democrat progressive and they, and they have a deep history with the slave trade. And then they went back to, to, um, to West Africa. They went to the Caribbean and they literally traced the, they literally retraced their family's route in the transatlantic slave trade in the, in the triangle trade. And, and the conversations that they had in during the process were like, gut-wrenching they were like oh my god like what what i it never occurred to me to think about what it must be like for a white person whose family has a legacy around slave trading and slave ownership like what that feels like and in the room when the movie was over and we were having the conversation the amount of shame and anguish and pain and like embarrassment that was sitting with the white people in the room was like, it, it, it was incredible. It was like, I never, wow. Like it was a whole revelation to me. And what I realized is that part of the reason why 
we haven't had really healthy conversations about race in America is because there's no place for white people's grief around it. And often what happens is there's either no place or it's centered. And it's like, neither one of those is really helpful. Like you don't get to come to a conversation about race and be like, and say, well, it wasn't me. I wasn't even there. Right. Cause that's, that's one, one scenario. And the other scenario is like, you don't get to have feelings at all, which is not human. It's like not human. Like how, how, how are you supposed to show up? How am how am I supposed to how can I ask you to show up fully in a conversation and then ask you not to show up fully in a conversation? But the balance around trying to um, express the grief and shame without centering grief and shame is something that I find that white folks find hard to do. And on top of that, it is you know not my responsibility or obligation to help white people hold their shame and grief but it's something i choose to do but it's not for the faint of heart it's very heavy it's very hard it's very painful it's very violent to have to hold that kind of grief when you're holding so much of your own and so much injustice of your own especially when it's still happening every day like right so it's not like we need to deal with this thing that ended 20 years ago so we can have some reconciliation it's like this thing that happened 500 years ago and 400 years ago and 300 years ago three days ago and three hours ago and three minutes ago and so i'm actively having to process my own grief my own fear my own everything and still hold you in a place where you can do the same thing so we can have a real conversation and you can activate because the other thing is like some people don't are never going to activate like some white folks are just going to be like that's not my thing and i'm so sorry for you and whatever but like for me i i need folks to activate like i do it because i'm because i'm optimistic and i'm like well surely you're not doing anything because you don't really understand what's happening so maybe if i if i if i make the contribution of like creating space for you to actually experience your own feelings and relationship with what happened and then learn some more truth based on my perspective then i'm sure surely you will do something because this is you know especially folks who are in the wellness community jeff because i feel like we are um, a community of people who has a different kind of relationship with themselves and with a different relationship with like the world in theory. So we're generally people who pray. We're generally people who understand how to be still. We're generally people who um, have some kind of embodiment practice, which makes it, um, which gives you more access to hard conversations. And my hope is that like, folks are just sitting in their privilege and not really clear or they're scared or they don't have an entry point. And I feel like it's important for me, especially in this moment to do my best to say, Hey, everybody, like here's what's happening. Who's interested. And if you're not interested, God bless you. And like, cause you know, you'll, you'll benefit from the, from the transformation anyway. But if you are interested and you do want to be activated and you do want to learn and you do want to learn how to see other people as in their full humanity, then I, I, I'm strong enough emotionally and spiritually to hold that weight. And I have my own community that I can go to when I get full and I know how to say no when I need a break. And, um, and I know how to say like, actually, I can't hold that today. You need to go call somebody else. And I, and I also have white friends who say, when white people call you or if you can't handle it, tell them to call me and I got it. 
because that's what that's what happens when you're in community. You have people who step up when you're not able to. Um, and and I struggle with I struggle with the notion of like doing other people's emotional labor because that's something I don't I don't ever want to do whether they're in personal relationships or, or other. I don't want to do anybody else's work because I can't. But I do wonder and I do continue to push myself and I do continue to experiment with what it looks like for me to be a clearing for other people's work when they're willing to do it. Like if you're willing, if you're going to show up, I'm going to show up for you and help you and help you until you don't need it anymore. Um, And that's, you know, I don't know why, I don't know why, I don't know where that came from. It's just what, it's just seeing, I think going back, like I keep seeing the flash of sitting in that circle after that movie, it's like, humans it was it looked like human suffering it was like you know how you know what it looks like when people are in anguish when they're in emotional anguish and they don't know what to do with it and it never had it had never occurred to me that there were you know white folks who were just like didn't know what to do with the emotion of it because it's a it's a lot it's a lot Hey, it's Jeff. And as an athlete, I've been told my entire life to make sure that I get enough electrolytes. But it's only recently that I have truly understood what electrolytes are and the many essential physiological functions that they fulfill. Okay, so you ready for Electrolytes 101? Here we go. When essential minerals like sodium, potassium, chloride, and magnesium dissolve in a fluid, they form electrolytes, positive or negative ions needed to maintain vital bodily functions. For example, sodium ions are used by the brain to send electrical signals, hello electrolytes, through your neurons in order to communicate with other neurons and the cells throughout your body. So electrolytes are key for brain health. Sodium also retains water and maintains proper hydration levels and fluid balance in your cells through a process called osmosis. Now, calcium and potassium are needed for muscle contraction. They facilitate muscle fibers to slide together and move over each other as the muscle shortens and contracts. And magnesium is also required in this process so that the muscle fibers can relax after contraction. Now, magnesium is a total other beast. It plays a role in protein synthesis, sleep, and blood sugar balance, and hundreds of other functions. Now, it's for all these reasons and more that I add Element to my water. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. And guess what? No sugar. Element is sweetened with stevia, a plant-based sugar substitute that won't spike glucose levels. A 20-ounce serving of many popular sports drinks that I'm sure you know can contain 36 grams of sugar. It's absurd that those products are marketed as healthy when they contain almost as much sugar as a soda. Many listeners know that I still play competitive tennis. Now, before I started using Element, I was prone to fatigue and cramping during long matches due to the loss of sodium. 
no longer. I'm right there moving like a panther at the end of a grueling three-set match. So right now, Element is offering Commune listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com slash commune. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T, drinkelement.com slash commune. Element offers no questions around refunds, so try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a friend and they will give you your money back. No questions asked. You've got nothing to lose. So go to drinkelement.com slash commune. It's interesting just hearing about your upbringing and how um, intertwined spirituality and culture and politics <laughs> were in your upbringing. And, yeah. you know, as I've studied a bit of American history, certainly like in the 1960s when kind of liberal white progressives and, and Americans started becoming interested in Eastern religions and Buddhism and mm -hmm. meditation and yoga that was very closely uh, alloyed to um, political action. I mean, I remember interviewing Marianne Williamson one day, and she was yeah. like, yeah, it used to be I Ching in the morning, and then, you know, anti-Vietnam right. protest in the afternoon. And there was That's a right. much uh, tighter uh, unity between um, one's concept of their own spirituality and, and the well-being of society. And then mm. somewhere it feels like we lost our way and wellness and spiritual practices became very personal and, and obviously mm -hmm. highly commodified and more mm -hmm. uh, associated with lycra than civil rights, <laughs> um, if you will. And, uh, and, you know, I think we went through multiple generations of this idea of, you know, get your sully, dirty politics out of my sacred personal yes. space. This is where I go to yes. escape that. And, yes. um, I, you know, obviously, I think, you know, since 2016, mm. uh, I think people have started to wake up, but what they and make that connection a little bit more directly that I, you know, the notion that I can't be well if my society is not well, um, and yeah. drawing that straighter line between their own personal well-being and the well-being of society. But I think what we need in that regard are messengers um, to help yeah. um, shepherd that idea. Um, and, you know, we need them in every community, um, but particularly yeah. in the white community that I think has looked yeah. to wellness as a, as a, in a very commodified, almost, you know, capitalistic way. Um, so... I mean, just, just kind of bringing the conversation into kind of what's happening right now. And just for context for the, our listeners, this is Tuesday, June 2nd that we're recording this. So we're, we're eight days out from uh, the murder of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, over that period, um, boy, uh, the world has changed. Um, you mm -hmm. know, we've been witnessing obviously protests, largely peaceful, but not always, mm -hmm. um, in virtually every American city. Um, and now this has become an international phenomenon um, as there's mm -hmm. demonstrations all over the world. And I, I guess my question f for you is, what's the difference this time? Because for 10 years, it's <laughs> been Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and Freddie Gray mm -hmm. and Michael Brown and, you know, Brianna Taylor. Adele, so, Amadou Diallo. Mm -hmm. Right. Even, yeah, I was in mm -hmm. New York then. Um, I, yeah, I was in Jersey. I remember it very clearly. Yeah. Um, and um, what's what's the difference this time? What, why did it boil over? Um, I've been thinking about this a lot, so I have I have the actual answer. But I want to I want to go back to something that you said a few seconds ago. Mm -hmm. That I want to I want to just point out that it's very natural for uh, Americans to take the sacred and make it a commodity because our culture is really rooted in capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy. So anything that doesn't do that, anything that doesn't, that we don't figure out how to sell and make about us individually and be myopic about and all that and like turn our backs on the rest of the world is actually countercultural. And that's why we do it so easily and we slip into it so easily and we never even realize it until we look up and we're like, oh, wellness is no longer a practice, it's now an industry. And so, like, I want to, it's important, it's, I think it's important that we, that we understand that and that we own that as a truth, because the only way that we're going to have, we're going to be able to build a new culture for ourselves collectively is if we can acknowledge the culture that we've been steeped in this whole time. And that if we think about the fact that, you know, 500 years ago, this country started by some folks who decided that the people who lived here were not worthy of their life or their land, and they stole land, committed genocide, and stole a whole bunch of other people and enslaved them, is the same exact set of values that allows us to kill the planet and to kill animals and to, like, use too much plastic. And, like, it's all the same disregard for life for the sake of profit. And it's the same set of values that allowed us to go from a community of people who are practicing Eastern practices and forget about that. And, and the most important thing is, like, who's, whose logo was on your booty or on your yoga mat. It's just literally the same culture and the same set of principles. And I think it's important that we start to make those connections so that we can see how pervasive it is and how if we just make one shift, then the whole world of liberation for all people, all beings, all planet, all animals, all ozone layer, like just all shifts if we just change the way that we interact with life in general, right? So that's important to I say. Mean, I think that's an incredible point. And you say it beautifully. Um, Thank you. That the nature of our human relationships has become completely transactional. So if, yeah. you know, so if you're an economic unit that, that reflects value to someone, then you yep. will be valued. But if you live, you know, under an overpass in Hollywood, you're basically right. not worth anything. And, um, that's right. Yeah. That's right. 
And that's an extension of like if you, the the last year the sixteen nineteen podcast came out. They had the, the second episode was about the economy, and they basically made an argument that our twenty first century economy is derivative of a slave economy, which is why there's like this thing around like what kind of what what financial value do you bring? If you bring no financial value, then you're useless to us as a society. And also like the way that we work in terms of like all of us, no matter what color, what religion, what background. We work too much. Like our culture is about working too much and getting the most last little drop of life we can get out of everybody. And and if you can take a break, God bless you, but you probably are not even going to take a break when you have a break because we're so trained. Like the most important thing, our identity is connected to our work. And so like we have all, we're all suffering from the idea that you can turn a human being into a commodity and, and have them like spend their life force making money for you. That's, that's what corporate life is about. That's why so many people are like, I quit my corporate job and started to be a pastry chef. Cause I felt like I was dying because corporate jobs are built to squeeze the life out of you. That's just the way our culture is built. So now I'm going to ask you, I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> your question. <laughs> Your question was, what is different now? And I, I, I think a couple things are different. I think the 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 thing that struck me first, and this when I was thinking about this, was that um, we have all been sitting at home for two and a half months. Some of us for longer than that, yeah. and we all know in this community like what stillness does for you. And when you're sitting at home and you're not on a plane every week or you're not going out every night, you're not, you know, self-medicating with shopping or drinking or whatever thing you do, friends, whatever you do. Um, And many of us have been not just uh, sheltering at home, but sheltering at home alone. And so our relationship with ourselves, whether you want it or not, is deepening. Our relationship with silence and stillness is deepening, whether you want it or not. And the awareness um, and the listening that you have for life deepens when you have a stillness practice. So I think that that's part of it, that we've been sitting at home for, for almost three months. I think the second part of it is that people, like there are some people who are leaning into the stillness and there are some people who are losing it, who are like, I can't stay in this house for one more minute, which does, which does a whole nother thing to you, right, to you about like, being ready to jump into action, being ready to show up, being ready to say the thing, being ready to do the thing. And so I think that there's that. I think the third um, element of it is the narrative that we've all been listening to around the pandemic that is um, lifting up these issues of race and class that have been here all along. So thinking about the number of people who are unemployed, thinking about the the health disparities in black and brown communities, the fact that black folks are dying faster, more often from COVID, the fact that, you know, folks in black communities and, and Latinx communities uh, lost their jobs sooner and in more volume, um, the number of folks who need frontline support, then, you know, all that stuff. We have we were already for two months we've been talking about how hard it is for for black brown and poor communities. We were talking about that for two months and talking about it in such a way that people were shocked, right? So it's like when everybody when the world is changing this fast and everybody is suffering and you like whoa I'm no I'm suffering because I just lost my job but look at what you're dealing with because it's on the news every day and that is not something that people talk about on the news. That's not like health disparities, 
income inequality, like the digital divide. That's not something you get that you hear the narrative that you hear drummed into you every day, every day, every day, every day on the news. And so the combination of the hyper awareness of the issues that these communities are already dealing with on top of the fact that you've been sitting at home and you're either activated to do something or you're listening very deeply, I think is is how we ended up in a space where where the world the, the whole the world is activated around the response to the to the murder of George Floyd and and I for me like I I, I <laughs> when when the pandemic first started and we start we first had to stay at home I felt guilty because one I like enjoyed it because I like being at home by myself but two <laughs> because I was excited because I was like, this is a a time where people are going to be suffering and I'm sorry for the suffering. And I also think that this is a window for people to actually see the truth of who we have been being and give us an opportunity to make some shifts. Like when you go through a global pandemic, there is no normal anymore. Like that thing that people keep being like, I can't wait for us to get back to normal. Like normal is over with it's over. Life is going to be, different in one way or another from now on because of what we've been through just from the global pandemic. Like you go back a week and it's like life was never going to be the same already. And the decision was like, are we going to be a community of people in this country who support people in need, who have a culture of care and make sure that we all are living just equitable, abundant, joyful, beautiful lives, or are we going to get worse? And are the inequities and the divides going to get worse and worse and worse? And now that we're also seeing this, like, the evidence of so many years of violence in terms of, like, who we are as a militarized country, which is the part of the conversation that was missing. So, like, if you go, if you think about Martin Luther King, if you think about his speech on April 4th, 1967, it was called Beyond Vietnam. You can listen to it on the Internet. He gave a speech and he said, like, this war is unjust. I can't stop. I can't. I can't sit back anymore. I have to say something. And he turned that into a speech about the expansion of his theory of change from just talking about race to talking about race, talking about class and talking about militarism. And he said that these are the three legs on the stool of injustice. And unless we can deal with these three things, then we are never going to have a free country. And what we saw during the first two months of the pandemic was a lot of conversation about race and a lot of conversation about class and what the and what the emergence of this latest police murder has given us is entry point into the conversation about militarism and what it means to be in an over police over militarized unjust practice around around that part of our society and so what what's happening right now is that we are squarely at the nexus of race class and militarism in our society and everyone's like holy crap what and a lot of folks are waking up for the first time like there's a, there are those of us who live in in black communities or brown communities or poor communities who are like uh, where have y'all been like mad that people are just now like i can't believe that this is happening because for us it's a day-to-day Thing. Like I'm like I was called the N word for the first time at eight years old on the beat, so I'm not surprised when the black man is killed by the police. And the people who are shocked were like, "Man, okay, let me give me a few minutes because I need to be mad for a second that you're just now figuring this out. And now that you're figuring it out, like, what are we going to do? Like, what are you willing to do? What do you see? What do you feel? And and folks are 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 like, because no, 
people who are conscious don't want to live in a place like that. People don't want to live in a place that is unjust or unfair, but folks have been able to close their eyes to it. That's the power of white privilege. Like you get to, you get to not see it. You get to pretend like it's not there. You get to talk it away. You get to excuse it, but it's so on the surface because of those reasons that we like folks are, are not you like it's we're to the point where you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And again, as painful and as horrible as that is for me, it's an exciting moment because it's not like this has not been happening, but now, I mean, for God's sake, Disney did a, you know, seven minute and 46 seconds off the air yesterday in, in the acknowledgement of a police murder, like, and I get that it's brands and like, you know, the brands don't, are not whatever, but even that would, I would not have ever imagined that Disney, the Disney channel would have got, oh no, it wasn't Disney, it was Nickelodeon, that's even worse, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> who would have ever imagined that Nickelodeon would have gone off the air for almost nine minutes in the honor of a black man murdered by the police. That to me says that the conversation is shifting and there's openness for something new to happen that could not have happened a month ago. Hmm. Hmm. Let me digest all that for a minute. Yeah, uh, please. Because yes, please. Yeah, I, I, I haven't, I, I, <laughs> I haven't thought about that trifecta um, mm-hmm. that sort of, I guess in this case, imperfect storm. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to go watch that, that video. I think that's one year to the day before he was assassinated. Um, literally the year to the day before he was assassinated, literally. And it's a very, very powerful, very powerful speech. It's like shaped a lot of who I am. I I heard, I listened to it intentionally for the first time a couple of years ago because of my work in Memphis. And it's like that 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 speech plus the film called King in the Wilderness. If you watch those two things together, then you will like your understanding of what we're dealing with politically and economically and culturally will expand exponentially. Uh, I, I wonder if um, one of the reasons that we're seeing greater sense of outcry and involvement and statements from corporate America um, has anything to do with the lack of leadership that we generally (laughs) count on from our public institutions. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think we, we, you know, we've, we've been seeing that over the last couple of years where, you know, companies and the, the private sector seems to be um, more emboldened or, or feel a greater sense of responsibility for shepherding culture and society forward in, in the absence of leadership. So yesterday, um, I'm sure you, you watched President Trump. And, and I don't just uh, just to be clear, like I, I don't bash the president on this show um, mm. lightly. Uh, I don't do it flippantly is I guess the word. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but I do think it's important to talk about it because these are the times that, uh, you know, we look to leadership. So, uh, I'm sure you saw this president, uh, the president was photographed outside of the St. John's Episcopal church across from uh-huh. the white house holding a Bible. Um, and yeah. uh, this was evidently protesters were scattered with, uh, tear gas so he could make it there. Um, yeah. I, I wonder what 
you what how that made you feel and what do you uh what would be the appropriate kind of leadership that that you would be looking for from a president right now <laughs> I'm like if you I wish you could see right now I'm like literally holding my face like what how do I even e so Right. So, so it's so funny as you were asking your question, I'm like, oh, right. I forgot to add the big, the big, big um, condition that we're, that we're uh, dealing with that, that has brought this moment on. And that is our presidential leadership. Um, Because, you know, in one way or another, a lot of people have been suffering since, since the day he, took office in a different way and folks have been afraid and impacted in a way that has never happened in their lifetime. And I know that sounds dramatic, but it's like, you know, it's true. And and it's been interesting for me to watch like um, corporate leadership and how folks are like, n- no, like we're not, we're not allowing you to do that. And <laughs> oh my god yeah so yesterday i definitely watched the press conference and which is rare for me because i don't i have not been watching the news that much but of course with with all of the uh, uprisings and all the communities i'm watching the news more the last few days because it's important for me to stay connected to that as i do you know um do work that i'm doing here to try to deploy resources and information um i'm trying to do my best to stay in touch with what's happening on the ground and I happened to be watching when that um, when those uh, peaceful protesters were, you know, shot with rubber bullets and 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 gas and tear gas to try to move them out of the way so this man could walk across the street and um, hold the Bible up in front of the building. Mm-hmm. And before there's so there's so many things that I there were so many things that were so painful for me to watch one was him go in the rose garden and give that that speech where he acknowledged George George Floyd for literally two seconds and then spent the rest of his time um, embodying the very thing that got George murdered in the first place, which is like over militaristic patriarchal language around control and law and order and you know all the things that 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 we're doing wrong he was basically doubling down on to the point where he's like I am on top of all of that I'm about to invoke the insurrection act and it's like that is an act that was put in place to deploy American military against American citizens when they're in a rebellion trying to take over the government and it's like you equate are you are you telling me that you're equating you know americans saying like this is not okay and you're hurting us to a straight up like uh coup of the government because that's what you're that's what you're saying right and the the equating of the damage of human property uh, i mean of of like of of people's property over over the the damage to human lives is just astounding to me astounding to me that somebody who is in charge of our well-being as a nation is taking that stance and then and then to walk across the street 
stand in front of that church and hold up that Bible as a symbol of what? Like, what is what is it that you are? What is it that you're doing, right? And and of course, this morning I'm like, oh, he wasn't doing anything. He was sending a message to his evangelical base to make them exciting to let him know, let them know that he was still in control. But that's not that's not what leadership looks like to me, Jeff. I mean, and not that he's ever been anything that looked like leadership to me. And again, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that to be flip or anything. I honestly am saying like, when I think about what it means to be a leader, that is not that's not someone who 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 embodies compassion, vision, um, strength. Uh, knowledge, uh, communicate, like all the things that you want from people who are leading, he he literally has not one of them. And I, by God, I wish he did. I really do. <laughs> I, I wish that he was a better person. And I, I wish that he had a, that he had a better, um, that he had more compassion and more integrity, but he doesn't. And that's, that's not us. That he just doesn't. And to use, um, to use imagery associated with um, with Jesus, who was actually uh, one of the most powerful and intensely filled organizers and supporters of the poor and the and the downtrodden, and like for for him to use that imagery for political, financial, and military gain is disgusting to me. Right. It's disgusting. It's tone deaf to us, right? To his base, they're like, yeah, like, you know, that I was watching news earlier, and they're like, a lot of the evangelical leaders were so excited about that, and they were like, finally, yes. That's how you take control of a situation? Okay. But that, you know, but that's but that's just, that's just old thinking, old patriarchal thinking, old, you know, all that stuff, you know, releasing its grip on society, and, and I feel like what we need to do, like, <laughs> I have a terrible secret. I have a terrible secret to tell you. I can't believe I'm about to tell you this. This is awful. This is awful. I'm going to say it because we're having the whole conversation. So the okay. night that Trump was elected, um, I was at my dad's house in Florida, and I was sitting on the couch. Everybody had gone to bed because I was like, I'm not going to bed till they settle this. And I, and I was sitting on the couch, and they announced him as the president, and I burst into hysterical laughter. And I was like, well, here we go. This is the truth of who we are. And now we're about to have to deal with ourselves. Amazing. Fantastic. Let's go. And I knew that a lot of people were going to suffer and I knew there would be pain and I knew it was going to be hard. But I also knew that like, if you think about, and and I don't, and I also don't want to like paint Barack Obama as like the savior of all progressive politics because he wasn't. He did some things right, and he did a lot of stuff wrong, right? I do think that he was probably the most compassionate and spiritually uh, mature president that we've ever had. Obviously, he was the first black president, and that means something to me, too. But I don't want to paint him as if he is this bastion of progressivity, and he did all the right things, and he freed all the people and freed the land, because that's not what he did. But if we think about just those two people um, and the contrast that they represent, they are both who we are as a country. And it was important that, that Donald Trump 
take this position so that we would have to face the other side of who we actually are as a nation. Because what he represents is very deep in the DNA and the cultural DNA of our nation. And we have been acting like that's not true for a long time. So when politicians go on and we have inspirational speeches, super like, I, like Joe Biden did it today. Joe Biden did a speech today, re-kicking off his campaign. And he was like, America is about freedom and America is about this and America is about that. And while that may be true, America is also about choosing profit over people, you know, commodities over communities. Like, that is also very much who we are. And Donald Trump is, like, literally the the concentrated manifestation of all those things about us that we don't want to look at. And having Donald Trump as a president forced us forces us every day to look on that TV, look on the news, listen to his complete and utter shenanigans and figure out how to reconcile the fact that he is a representation of who we are. Those are, mm-hmm. some of us are doing it. Some are, some of us are laughing at him, ridiculing him, dismissing him and pretending that he's not a part of us, but we would do well to say to ourselves, like, let me look at this man and think about how I'm embodying what he's representing to me and how I am impacting who we are as Americans and how we are facilitating and enabling the murder of somebody like George Floyd, because we all are participating in patriarchy, in hypercapitalism, in white supremacy. We all participate because it's a narrative that is pervasive in our education system, in our banking system, in our whatever system you can think of, those the DNA of this country is those things too. Mm-hmm. And unless and until we're willing, again, to face that and what that does for us in terms of, like, the shame that we might feel, the embarrassment that we may feel, the denial that we may feel, until and unless we're able to face our own darkness individually and collectively as a nation, then we're going to continue to pretend like it's all good and we're going to be surprised when another black man gets murdered on the news. And so our opportunity right now is to be like, okay, like, this is this is part of who we are. Like Donald Trump was not an enigma. He was not the cause of this culture that we're in right now. He was a result and an expression of part of the culture that we have been embodying for 500 years. And this is a fantastic time for us to say, okay, because the thing is, number one, every system boils down to people, right? So like, I'm also like, I also full disclosure and a person who believes in the spiritual evolution of humanity. So if like we did nothing in a hundred years, we would just be better because our souls will evolve. Our understanding will evolve. Our connection to God will be deeper and more intense and we will just be better. So there's that. Right. But I also think like there is a, there's an opportunity for us to, to take a moment in which the veil has been lifted on the reality of race, the reality of class, and the reality of who we are as a militarized government, and ask ourselves, is that who we want to be? Or do we want to be the beloved community that King talks about in that speech? Like, are we interested in making the leap from being a society that is full of extraction and exclusion and violence, or do we want to be uh, a, a fully interdependent, beloved community? Understanding that love is not always juicy and fluffy and easy and rainbows and sunshine, that sometimes love is accountability, love is difficult, love is hard conversations, love is looking at yourself, like understanding all of that. This is a, This is probably the first time in my lifetime, certainly, and maybe ever that 
the window is open wide enough for all of us to jump through it together, but we have to jump through it together. And I am looking for the people who are like, this is going to be hard and I don't really know how to do it and I'm going to make mistakes, but I want to jump too. And that's why I spend my time in conversations like this saying like, let me, let me create a, a, a portal for you to walk through because like, this is not just about, this is not like, <laughs> My parents raised me to be very committed to black liberation and to black people. And I love black people, but if only black people get free, then we didn't do the thing. Like, this is about, like, I I am not, like, I'm a person you should never say all lives matter to. However, we have to make, everybody has to get there. Like, everybody has to get there. We all have to get there. We got to get there. Like, as a, as a human race, we got to get there. Now, am I, am I going to be more committed and more um, active and more to, 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 to black issues? Absolutely. Because that's my duty as a black woman. And it's also like, it's also what we need to help bring equity. Like we got to do that work. And I think from a spiritual perspective, there has to be an accounting for the fact that some folks, for, for, for some folks, this work is going to be harder than for others. And I I don't want people not to jump in because they're scared. Like, I'm like, yes, it's going to be scary. Yes, it's going to be hard. But, like, you know this is the right thing to do. And why don't you just come on? Just come on. Just come on and we'll figure it out. Hey, it's Jeff. Now, I always heard vitamin supplements are a waste of money as they just pass through your system. Expensive pee, right? Well, now I understand why and the reasons it's so hard to absorb large doses of certain nutrients through the pills, powders, and gummies at the store. Now, when you take these supplements or even consume foods, your digestive system must extract vitamins and minerals, and depending on the nutrient, convert them to a form your body can use. Now, some nutrients depend on proteins to transport them into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Now, often these supplements contain such large quantities that your body doesn't have enough resources like transporter proteins to absorb the nutrients. Since your body can't store water-soluble vitamins like C and the B family, as well as minerals like magnesium, zinc, and selenium, they wind up excreted and never reaching the cells where they are needed to support your immune system, metabolism, nervous system, and so much more. Now, I didn't know all of this when I started taking Livon Labs Lipospheric Vitamin C. I just know that if Skylar was giving them to me, they must be good. Well, it turns out that Livon Labs understands the difficulty of high-dose nutrient absorption, and they became the first dietary supplement company to use liposomal encapsulation technology to enhance nutrient absorption. Now, liposomes are double-layered spheres that Live On Labs uses to surround, protect, and transport water-soluble vitamins and minerals into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. The liposomes are made of essential phospholipids, the same material that makes up your cells, so they easily pass into the cells and deliver the nutrients 
staying behind to fortify the cell membrane. Now, the Livon Labs liposome encapsulated supplement line includes vitamin C, a B vitamin complex that contains pre-methylated folate, a magnesium specifically formulated for the brain, and the master antioxidant glutathione. And guess what? Only the ingredients necessary for maximum absorption. That means no sugar and no fillers, no colors, no artificial flavors. If you don't want to know what that tastes like, and trust me, you probably don't, make sure to follow the instructions on the package. Uh, right now, Live on Labs is offering Commune listeners free sample two-packs of all their liposome encapsulated supplements with any purchase. This is a great way to try all six of their powerful supplements and get accustomed to their weird, unique, goo-like consistency. Just get yours at liveonlabs.com commune. This offer is only available through my link. You must go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Live on Labs has a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. So you have nothing to lose. Go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. I want to ask you about religion. And um, I love talking about religion. Yeah, be, because if everyone's going to jump through that window, it, it's going to be a lot of folks that um, that believe in God that are that are Christians in this country and certainly evangelicals. So I, I woke yeah. up this morning and a friend of mine had texted me um, a, uh, a quote from from Matthew. Uh, I'll just read mm. it. It's, it's pretty quick. Chapter six, verse five. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So um, he, he sent it without any context to just send me the quote. And no I, context I, needed. Uh, yeah, no context <laughs> needed. And, you know, the president doesn't strike me as, as someone that can recite a lot of scripture on, on his own. No. Um, but, um, but he certainly has a tremendous support of the evangelical community. I think 81% of the, of the yes, evangelicals voted for, for the president last time around. Um, and you know, when when I look at the um, so, some of the absolutely necessary structural organizations that can provide um, a girding to a movement, I think back mm-hmm. to the '60s and and you know the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and SNCC mm-hmm. and and, um, and what a big part the black church played within the movement and um and i wonder where that is now because for the last i don't know 20 30 40 years it feels like the right has a monopoly on 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 religious morality um yeah even if the policies of that of of the right 
have are in complete misalignment with the teachings of Christ. So uh, yeah. I, I just wonder where you where is the Black Church right now within the yeah. movement, and do you see that as an integral part of the movement today? Yeah. I have so much to say about this. This is a whole other podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, geez. Um. So, where do I start? So, so, the, so the first thing I will say is that I think it's an important thing to be reminded of is that one of the most powerful tools that was used in slavery to keep um, folks enslaved was the Bible, and that there were um, so many, so many scriptures that were pulled out, repeated over and over again, you know, um, slaves obey your masters, like that, that's in the Bible. And that was used to be able to keep um, folks enslaved and quiet. It's also been used against women. Like this is the role of the woman. This is the place of the woman. Like if if you can use scripture to justify horrible things, right? So like, so, so first let's, let's separate um, the Christian doctrine and the Bible from the embodiment of righteousness, wisdom, and joy, and love, because it's easy to do that. Yeah, fair enough. Um, And I also love to remind people that Christ wasn't Christian. (laughs) Like, Jesus was a Jewish man who came into the world at a time when there was great corruption in the church, great corruption in the government. And he was like, we're not doing this anymore, guys. These rules don't matter. What matters is that you love God with all your heart and that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. He didn't say, start a religion in my name. He did not say, build a bunch of buildings. He did not say, oppress people with the Bible that you wrote down for remembrance, for remembrance of what I did and said. He didn't say any of that. He said, love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Those are the rules that you need to follow. And so I think that like the foundation of this conversation is that and the understanding that sometimes Christians um, out, act outside of the will of Christ. That's really important to know. And I think it's also important to know that um, there is actually a political strategy um, that created this idea of like this um, Southern religious right evangelical Republican uh, right wing political context that was really like about the fact that uh, during Reconstruction, a lot of um, white Southerners who used to be Democrats during Reconstruction, they were pissed because they were like, why, why are y'all spending all this money on building black communities and why this and why that and why we, we, we want slavery back. We, we, we're Confederates. We let the Dixie flag fly. Like people were pissed and the Republican Party made a strategic decision to lean into the the discomfort and and the disenchantment of southern white people and said like we're going to build a party where we can we can uh, magnify and lean into the fact that white people in the south are mad because black people are, are are getting what they need to thrive and the modern like the modern wave of of white evangelical christians comes from that and um because 
of that, the right has always done a fantastic job of talking about values and vision and like, this is our land, this is our country, we need to protect these values. And that is why they've been able to rise and to, and to usurp and take control of the moral stance in politics because they don't talk about policies. Like you can't, you, they don't talk about like, we're going to pass this law or that law. They talk about community. They talk about, talk about family values. They talk about God. They talk about all the things that resonate with us as human beings. Yes, the application of those things are nefarious um, from some people's points of view. Um, but the way that they, their marketing campaign is all about family, about values, about vision, about all that. And then the left, does a horrible job at that. We always want to talk about the details. We always want to talk about the policy. We always want to make people read 500 pages, white papers, and this and that and the other. But we do a horrible job of inspiring people by sharing with them what our vision of the world is and what our core values are. That is the thing that we need to really think about. How do we shift the narrative before we try to shift the policy? Because that's always the way this works. The second part of this conversation, specifically about the Black church, is that if you listen to the so like a historic Claiborne Temple in Memphis, which is the, the the real estate development that I'm working on, it's a historic black church that was um, that was the site of King's last campaign. So when King was murdered in Memphis, he was working at historic Claiborne Temple, and the man who was the chief strategist for that for the sanitation workers strike th- that campaign. Um, whose name is Reverend James Lawson, who was the original architect of um, Kingian nonviolence because he met King when he was in his 20s and he had already traveled to India, traveled to Africa and had been studying nonviolence and introduced King to to Gandhi and nonviolence. Came to Claiborne last year. He's like in his 80s. He's the smartest man I ever met in my life. and He's adorable and I love him so much. But we we were talking and he said like, when you think about the narrative of the black church and the civil rights movement, it's not accurate because most churches and most preachers stayed at home and did not show up for the movement. But because the ones that did were so prominent, it looks like it was a movement of the black church. The other thing I think is important to know is when you're talking about the sixties, the idea and the context of respectability is important because at this point, you think it's bad for black people now in the 50s and the 60s and the 40s, people were were being literally lynched from trees all the time, right? That was still, that was happening a lot back then. And so it was important for the narrative, for the, for the people who seemed respectable in society who would be able to get the listening of folks who would be able to like not be able to be disparaged and oppressed to be able to stand out front. So if you think about Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks was like the fourth or fifth or sixth black woman that got arrested on the, that sat on the bus and got arrested. But the NAACP and other organizations made the decision to not put those other stories forth because one was an unwed mother or one was unemployed or one was too young or one was this or one was that. And Rosa Parks happened to be not just the person who sat down on the bus and got arrested, but she was also the person who was the perfect age, the perfect look. She had this secretary job. She was the churchgoer. She had all the, the she, there was no way that anybody could disparage her in the press. They couldn't disparage her character. They couldn't disparage her practices and she her her character was bulletproof from a from a like a modern like public point of view right in addition to that 
Rosa Parks had been trained at a place called the Highlander Center in Tennessee on how to do civil disobedience, how to run organizations and all that stuff. So like when we look at the story that we think about, like this was just a bunch of Black people who went to church who decided that's not what it was. It was a highly organized, highly effective, highly thought out movement, mm-hmm. right? And then all the people fell in because at that point, every black person is going to church. Every white person, like church is what you did back then, right? There were not like, if you think about, about society in the 50s and 60s and societies in 2020, the number of people who are involved in, in traditional Christian church is totally different, right? So if you wanted to organize Black people, you had to go through the church because it was where people felt safe. It was where they built community. Churches were not just where you went on Sunday. It was where you went on Wednesday night for Bible study. It was where you went on Saturday night for the for the social. It was where you went on Tuesday for the fish fry. It was where your kids went for, for, for kids' church and for youth group. It was like what you, it was the center of your community. It was not, people were not driving 30 minutes to go to church. There were like neighborhood churches that provided food for your soul, for your body, for your mind, and for your family. And so it was a central organizing entity in every neighborhood so that when politics were activated, it just became the same thing, the same thing too. Hmm. Now, in, this 20, in the 21st century, I think that there are, there are absolutely still religious leaders who are doing the work of social justice. If you look like Reverend Barber, you look at look at uh, Reverend Sekou here in Memphis, you look at whole um, whole institutions like Union Seminary in New York, like there are religious institutions who are committed 100% to social justice. But I think people's relationship with church is different now. And I also think that there's like a lot of people who are questioning traditional religious doctrine and, and, and who are like, wait a minute, I don't see myself in this. So like, I don't see myself when I go to church and there's a white Jesus on the wall, or I don't go to see, I don't see myself when I go to church and you're telling me I have a demon in me because I'm LGBTQIA, or I don't see myself because I'm a woman. And you said that women can't lead in a religious space. So I actually don't know if I can be my whole self here, if I can show up in my fullness, if I can feel honored and loved in this space. And so, no, I'm not going to give you those parts of me that are most tender and most, and most whatever, and I'm not going to trust you to lead me in terms of political organizing. And so I think that there is, um, there's a shift in, like, the traditional, um, you know, manipulated religion that is traditional Western Christianity that people don't trust like they did back then. Um, And people are building religion and they're building spiritual community in a different way, whether inside or outside of the Christian context. You know what I'm saying? And so the, I guess the answer to my, to your question is part of it is that the story that you think that you know about the role of the church is not exactly that, but also like so much has changed and people are, people want to be free. And a lot of people unfortunately don't feel free um, in in that context, and I and I hope that you know leaders who who are followers of Christ and who understand the need to and the compulsion to rebuild the church that that is more in alignment with what what who he was and what his vision for humanity was, including the fact that he wasn't a white guy. Like we need to <laughs> deal with that. Like Jesus was not a white dude, right? 
he didn't he was not born and lived in Europe. He was not did not have straight blonde hair and blue eyes. It's not that is not who he was. And I think that that is like if when you're talking about society, if you if you put if you tell the lie that in a Christian country, like understanding that we're very diverse and a lot of people do lots of spiritual approaches. But for America espousing itself as a Christian country, when you put the the head of the church as a um, a reimagined white man with long hair that's blonde and blue eyes, and you say like this is the reason why um, why white people are the best is because like God is white, then you're you're there's nowhere to go from there. There's nowhere to go from there when you have people on the news saying not only is Jesus white, but so is Santa Claus and deal with it. Like that's not, that doesn't ever lead you anywhere good. It doesn't lead you anywhere good. And I also want to acknowledge a lot of folks who are listening. This is, this is the conversation around their dinner table with their family and their extended family. It's like a lot of folks, a lot of white folks who have embraced um, Eastern religious practices or wellness practices or meditative and contemplative practices are in families that still believe in the old ideas about who white people are to the world. And, you know, we have to be courageous in, in having those conversations and find ways to, to discern who's interested in coming along and who's not. And then like, stop fighting. Don't fight. Don't fight. Spend your energy working towards building a new reality in the new world, as opposed to like trying to convince your uncle that Jesus is not white or whatever. Like, don't, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting um, with uh, what I would say is a, uh, cross-racial disaffiliation with institutional religion that's happened over the last, yeah. you know, 20 years. I think one of the, yeah. um, one of the kind of perilous parts of that is the absence of community space and, and community place and organization. What, you know, what fills mm-hmm. that gap? And that, that's, um, if anything actually does, and I, that's a whole, I think, extended conversation. I want yeah. to bring in the dimension of COVID um, mm-hmm. because it's a whole nother layer. Of course, you know, two weeks ago or even mm-hmm. nine or even nine days ago from this recording, yeah. there was COVID all the time. That's um, and obviously the, uh, that's obviously the narrative has, has changed. And yeah, obviously, you know, we have, lightly touched on the fact that African-Americans have been disproportionately impacted by COVID. Um, The numbers are striking. You know, I did just pull, you know, a few statistics, uh, you know, in Louisiana, African-Americans make up 32% of the population, but account for 70% of the deaths. And you can pretty much map that similar math almost everywhere. Um, And, and there's a lot of ground conditions or underlying conditions for that, that, um, that COVID has shown a microscope on, um, you know, nine days ago it was stay home. Um, now of course, um, you know, since the death of George Floyd and, and everything that we've talked about that is now bubbled to the, to the surface, um, you know, we've seen protests um, all across the country, 
And yeah. I, I wonder what, you know, the message is out there because, you know, certainly there is a public health risk um, that, you know, the community that wants to galvanize uh, is putting itself at risk, um, yeah. you know, a, 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 but then at the same time, uh, you know, I mean, what is the message? Is the message like go out and pray with your feet and hit the ground or is it stay home and, and, <laughs> you know, focus on, on your own health and public health? It's very confusing. Yeah, that is, that is, um, that is the conundrum. And what I would say is that, well, I, there's a couple things. So the first thing I would say is two weeks ago, I mean, three weeks ago, the, the message was kind of stay home, but there was also like a whole bunch of people at a whole bunch of state houses with signs that say, I need a haircut. Yes. So this is not the first instance of civil disobedience and, 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 and like people out in the street protesting. That was actually conservatives who were mad because they couldn't go to the movies. Mm-hmm. So there's that. The other thing I'm going to say is that um, three weeks before that, most of these folks who are in the street were at work because they're essential workers because they work at the grocery store because they work at um, as delivery people because they're nurses because they're <clears throat> you know because they work at the liquor store because they work at the you know all the ridiculous things that we've decided were essential outside of the things that are actually essential. It's 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 people it's black people, Latinx people, poor people who are who indigenous people who 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 are doing these jobs. And so a lot of for a lot of people, it would be like, you know, people were getting mad because people were like going to the park. It's like you are making me go to work on Monday, but then telling me I can't go out to the park on Sunday. What are you talking about? Like the dissonance was already there. And so like. It is not, um, a lot of these folks have been going out every day already, risking their lives every day already. And so to ask them to stay home and not risk their lives for their lives doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? And it's like, and on, and if none of that were true, if none of that were true and all them people were at home because they have jobs that they allow, that they get to go on Zoom and they have a, you know, a, if all that was true, even still imagine how horrible this must be for us if we decide that even in the midst of a global pandemic, I'm going out on the street because I can't not say no out loud in public, on camera, on whatever, because that's what it's like for us. Like, this is not about, um, this is like, (laughs) imagine, um, like for us, George Floyd is a representation of generations and generations and generations of violence, of disrespect, of being told we're not human. Like literally in the law, we were three-fifths of a human, right? And and uh, yes, a lot has changed. Yes, slavery is over, thank God. Yes, we have made a lot of progress. But when you look at our practices collectively, at who gets loans, at who gets jobs, that who gets, who gets respect, who gets, right. I, I, as a, like a, as a docile, um, shy, pretend shy or not, uh, African-American girl was followed around stores because people would suspect that I was going to steal something because I walked in with my brown skin. 
And, like, that's real. And I know that a lot of folks don't see that. Like, I know white folks don't see that, but that is real. It is real. And, I'm, and I am drenched in privilege. I have a position as a father, an attorney, as a mother. I went to college. Like, I, I have a lot of class and education privilege, right, in spite of my lack of privilege when it comes to my gender or my race. And so even... Um, you know, those of us who have privilege, like you saw Skip Gates arrested in front of his house, like all, every time, like there's so many stories, right? There's so many stories. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how articulate you are. If you are walking around in a black body, you are not safe in America. That's just the truth of what it is. And, you know, in order for us to, it's, it's impossible to reconcile. It's like, it's not like, there is no message, right? There is no message on whether you stay home or you, or you, or you, or you go out to protest because we've already been experiencing a conflicting message for this whole time about who mm-hmm. has to go outside and who gets to stay inside and look out the window and go on Zoom, mm-hmm. right? When you, when you order groceries and you, and they get dropped off and you look at who's the person who delivered your groceries, it's probably a black person or a brown person or an indigenous person. That's just what it is. Because the way that structural racism is set up is that white folks have more access to jobs and to wealth and to resources and have jobs that don't require them to leave their house during a pandemic. But that's not true of other folks. It's not true of black folks and brown folks and indigenous folks. We got to go out and work. We got to deliver your packages and we got to make, you know, all the things that, that, that you're not doing for yourself. Somebody who is uh, one of those races is probably doing it for you. And so they've been outside this whole time. So why can't they go outside and fight for their freedom and protect their families and enrage against the machine that tells them they're not human? Hey, it's Jeff, and I'm excited to tell you about one of our partners here on the podcast. Vivo Barefoot is a natural health lifestyle company on a mission to reconnect people to the natural world and to their innate potential from the ground up, person by person, foot by foot. Created by Galahad and Asher Clark, two cousins from a long line of cobblers, Vivo Barefoot draws upon three simple barefoot design principles, wide, thin, and flexible. These design principles lead to optimal foot health and natural movement. Vivo Barefoot makes their footwear from the best materials nature has to offer, allowing your feet to move, to breathe, and to perform with every step. A million years of engineering also known as evolution, has yielded the perfect blueprint for standing, walking, and running, your feet. When left to their own devices, they can cope with everything from walking and running to jumping and dancing, but cram them in a modern shoe and you cut off their natural potential. Now, I've been wearing Magna Forest boots for hiking the trails here in California. I love the feeling of the connection to the ground and their airiness while still providing me with the basic protections. I also get a ton of comments on the unique and attractive design. What's more, Vivo Barefoot is a certified B Corp. Vivo Barefoot is giving feet the freedom to move as mother nature intended. The best piece of technology ever to be put into a shoe is the human foot. So you can get 15% off 
your first Vivo Barefoot order at vivobarefoot.com and use the code VIVOCOMMUNE15 at checkout. That's vivobarefoot.com and use the code VIVOCOMMUNE15 at checkout. Reclaim your natural potential. The journey starts with your feet. Okay, help me unpack something else, um, and we okay. spoke about this briefly, um, and then I'll, and then, because um, I know it's getting late and you're on you're on Central Time, so I, res- <laughs> I, re- I respect your 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 dinner schedule. No, um, no. So today, actually, is there is yeah. a um, campaign on social media um, yeah. to mute. Um, in yeah. in solidarity and in and um, and in some cases, I, I think that there is an encouragement to share uh, voices, um, African American voices on your own social media. Um, yeah. And then there is a, another message, competing message, which is silence is complicity and, and okay. certainly um you know um you know dr king has his famous quote on silence um that you know we we see now as a meme um so, so okay. help unpack that for me in terms of in your opinion you know what is appropriate you know should um should white people be muting and listening and being humble of course they should but is that the appropriate response um or does one you know use their platforms to speak out Mm -hmm. um i have such a profound answer for you are you ready yeah i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know either (laughs) <laughs> because I mean I think it's, I think like one of the things that I've been sitting with for the past year or so is the truth that if we're talking about how do we build a just and joyful world how do we do that and the answer is that nobody knows and that we're all just doing we're doing the things that we think will work like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X or Harriet Tubman like those they didn't know it seems yeah. like this, when Harriet Tubman decided to run the first time, she didn't know if she was going to make it. She was just like, I know this is what I'm about to do. I feel compelled. I have this spiritual grounding, and it's telling me I got to go, and I'm going to go. And life is uncertain, so nobody knows the answers. Like, it's been so funny to me, people being like, in these uncertain times, life has always been uncertain since the first person was born. Nobody knew what was going to happen. We could all get swallowed by a tsunami today. Like, mm-hmm. The people at the bottom of Mount Vesuvius, they had an uncertain life, and so do we, right? No matter what plans they had made, they got eaten by a volcano that day. So there's, like, this idea that people are supposed to know the answers that just is not true. And what we can do is be in community with people who 
um, who are more experienced or smarter than us and decide to to follow them or to take our own experience when it's appropriate and lead when when we need to. And I think that what happened today around the 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 muting and the and the blackout is like somebody had an idea. Somebody was like, I feel strongly, I have this idea, and I want to do this. The question is, like, did they look around and say, who is leading in this moment? Who is holding the organizing? And should I check in with them to see if this is something that's going to that's gonna hurt the larger movement? It did not happen because there's uh, even in the, like, for, for on a, in kind of the social justice world, there's, like, you know, folks who have been working all day to counter the impact of that black square on your Instagram because folks were tagging Black Lives Matter and Movement for Black Lives and drowning out the fact that that Movement for Black Lives was posting like um, directives and resources and help for people that they weren't able to get through because they had a sea of black um, of black squares on their Instagram that were tagged hashtag Black Lives Matter. And so like that's why organizing is so important so that when we're doing these big, these big sweeping requests for people that they're actually coordinating in such a way that they're going to lead to something and not squash something else. And that's, you know, we're, this is our, <laughs> we don't have a deep organizing practice. Like you said, like back in the day, communities like both black church communities, Eastern um, um, practice, like those folks were organized and they knew who, where to look, who to look to to get the instructions. There was a, a way for the information to get out. That's just not, that's not, it's not that, it's not as widespread today. There is definitely organizing infrastructure. There are definitely people who are leading. Um, and we're in this new reality, 21st century age of Aquarius. And like, there's, there's a, um, a shift from, I was just talking about this book last night, like this this book, Leadership in the New Science, and the shift from traditional structures that were serious about your role to new, um, more open structures that's more, that where your relationship to people is more important, right? So we also have this shift in humanity that we, like that they don't talk about in political circles, they don't talk about on the news, but, but folks who are studying astrology and studying spirituality and studying all that, we know over the last 20 years there's been a, a shift in humanity. So new things are possible, but that also means that new things are emerging that we don't know how to manage yet. Um, and, I, and I think, like, what's important, like, no, you shouldn't be. I, I mean, I don't think anybody should be silent in this moment. The people who are silent, I'm looking at you cross-eyed. I'm looking at you out the side of my eye, like, why, you're, why aren't you saying something? That's, you know, like, I'm looking at you crazy if you're not saying anything. Does that mean that you need to feel like you have the answers and that you know what to say and that you know what to do? It does not mean that. It might mean that you need to be in relationship with other white folks who have been in this work around justice and equity and joy for all communities and get some instruction and some some tutelage from them. It might mean that if you are in deep relationship with black folks already or indigenous folks already that you offer your support to them and you say, I want to be a part of this. Will you like, am, am I, is there space for me and what you're doing and make that request? Please do not go and meet some new black friends and, and tell them you want to learn how to be a freedom fighter and to teach you. That's not their job. It's not their responsibility. And it's too much of a heavy lift for us. So do not do that. If you are from the beginning from scratch, 
you can give to organizations who are doing this work. You can um, talk to your talk to find white folks who who are who are prepared to bring you into the fold and teach you how to be um, a part of this movement. Um, and you can educate yourself, and you can read and listen to podcasts, and you can watch films and all that stuff to get yourself to the point where you know more. But please don't feel like you have the answers because we don't have answers. We have um, we have things that we're trying. We're we're building on on old information. We're creating new information, and and everybody is doing their best. And mistakes are going to be made, mm-hmm. and that's okay too, right? Like. That's that's okay too because as we're building a new world and we're learning, you know, that there's new space for our voices and there's new things to be done, um, we're gonna make mistakes. And part of living in this new world of compassion and love and grounding the divine feminine is that we have grace and we have space so that when we make mistakes, we forgive ourselves, we forgive each other, and we say, well, what did we learn? And let's do something new. Let's do something something advanced. Let's do something that builds on the thing that we just learned. And I think that that is really important because this is not about, like, being right. It's about being embodied in the values of a, a culture of care. That's what this is about. And if we want to live in a world where care is at the center, that means we have to be caring now. So when you see a man murdered on TV, it's not like you don't need to just, you, you don't need to know what to do except for like, what would you do if you cared? What would you do? What would you say? Where would you go? Who would you talk to? Who would you give money to? What would you read? What would you, like, that's the, that's the answer. That To me, that's the answer. And and I, we just, we just, <laughs> I mean, no, we're do. I mean, everybody's doing their best. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're all doing our best, and that doesn't mean be wanton and be reckless and just do stuff. Um, but it does mean that you're going to make mistakes. And like, I would rather someone make a mistake in earnest than do nothing because they were scared. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of organizations that you feel are um, I suppose well well organized and have good institutional leadership. Um, who do you look to right now mm-hmm. that um, that can be leading that on the ground? Yep, I think that there's a few people. I think um, if we're talking specifically about where we are today, I think that there. I mean, obviously. Um, the work that Movement for Black Lives has been doing this whole time is mm-hmm. phenomenal, important, needs to be paid attention to, and needs to be supported. There is um, an organization called the Minnesota Freedom Fund that's been working specifically um, as in this place of this new in this new nexus of 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 work that's been happening. Um, there is another place that's amazing called the Black Visions Collective that is like doing amazing, phenomenal, incredible work. Mm. And and there's, and there's a lot of local people doing amazing work that have been doing this work for a long time, right? So like if you, wherever you live, um, there is a way for you to find out who the, the justice-oriented organizations are that are doing amazing work. I don't know who they are and wherever you live, but I guarantee you they're not difficult to find. And I think... Um, that that there are also like resources specifically 
for white people, if you go on and you're like, do a Google search for how to be anti-racist or do a, a Google search for like your town and, you know, the folks who are doing work in, in your town, then you can find ways to plug in and to support and to be a part of what's happening, even if you've never done it before today. Like, don't feel like you have to take some course or read five books or know all the vernacular and all that. You don't. You just got to get off your butt and get activated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you hopeful? Not always. Always. (laughs) (laughs) I know you are. Always. Always. In some ways, I'm more hopeful today than I ever have been just because, you know, (laughs) eight months ago when I was, you know, in Memphis suffering, um, dealing with my own version of patriarchy and white supremacy and, like, not knowing if anybody in the outside world was ever going to care or change or do anything, um, or even if the people who wanted to do something were ever going to have the space for it to actually work, I, I I was not as hopeful as I am today with everything that's going on. Because the thing that makes me hopeful is that the more people we have that are aware, the more people we who have that say no make the possibility of a new future more and 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 more real. And I think it's important to to note that being hopeful and making progress doesn't mean ease and it doesn't mean no it doesn't mean like no pain. If we're if we are if we are midwives to witness and support the birth of a new reality and a new humanity, birth hurts like hell. If you've ever had a baby, if you ever watched somebody have a baby, it is like the most pain anybody that I've ever seen has been in. And there are moments that it's dangerous. There are moments when it you cry your eyes out. There are moments when you want to punch people. There are moments where you're confused, where you feel like you can't do it. And then on the other side, you get the greatest gift of life. And so I am hopeful and and I know that this is not going to be easy. And I know that people are going to make mistakes. And I know that, you know, all kind of violence and terrible things are going to happen in the midst. And if we're going to have a hard time, we might as well have a hard time in the in the quest for joy, mm-hmm. in the quest for justice, in the quest for abundance. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's how I feel. It's worth it. It's worth it. There's like, there's this quote that, 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 um, India and I have been wrestling with this, like, is what, is the life we're living? Is this, is the work that we've been doing all these years and making a difference? And and this quote that she's found that says, um, he who plants a seed knowing that he will never enjoy the shade is beginning to understand the meaning of life. And she did a, we had a um, a conference online that wellness the weed this week and she came on and did a thing and she was like, plant the seed, not because you want to see the shade, but because you want to plant the seed. Mm. And you're sitting in your house and you're suffering because you're like, this is not how humanity should be. This is not how I want to be. This is not how we should live. And you want to plant a seed, plant a seed because it's the right thing for you to do in this moment. Not because you have all the hope that in your lifetime you're going to see the fruit of your labor because that's not what this is. 
that's not that's not what this is. My my <laughs> my grandparents who were born slaves did not do the work that they did to be able to own their own land because they knew that they were going to live in 2020 and be able to, you know, have whatever the things that I have. They did it because it was the right thing for them to do in the moment because they refused to sit and live in the context that kept them enslaved. That's not what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. And so do it because it's the right thing for you to do now. Anasa Troutman, thank you for yeah. being so, such a, first of all, such a good friend. Um, oh, and, thank uh, you. But yeah. also, uh, and such an articulate, outspoken leader who's really just helping to shepherd uh, a lot of people through this time, you know, both black and white. And yeah. uh, I'm very, um, I'm very grateful. And it's hard to imagine that you were ever shy. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Uh, but I'll med- I'll, but I'll meditate. I'll meditate in that. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm here hum- humbly as your ally in in any in any uh, conquest, whether it's large or small. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you want to learn more about Anasa, check out her website at anasatroutman.com. Anasa has generously put together a series of resources for folks to better educate themselves on race. If you're interested in getting this list or have any feedback whatsoever, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and right now, to be there for each other. Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, You'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for Commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. 
That's insidetracker.com forward slash DRG.